0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. How do we know what we know? That's an important question. Because to say we know something, it's important to go to the root of how we know it. For some things, experience tells us that certain things can be known. I recall as a child, in the summers, we would always go to the beach every day, maybe except for one or two if the weather wasn't good. And on our way back, and this was always a contest between my mother and my grandmother, who would say first when they saw a red sky, oh, it's going to be a nice day tomorrow. And of course, we kids thought that was great because we want to go to the beach again. And my mother, this was her specialty, when we would hear crickets chirping, depending on how fast or how many chirps or whatever they were doing happened within a minute, she could predict and say, this means that it's going to be really hot tomorrow. Now, as a young child, I was like, how do they know this? But their forecasts usually came true. So what were they doing? They were interpreting things they saw or heard, and they were able to predict what the outcomes would be. And there are other kinds of interpretations like this. When somebody has the chills and you touch their forehead and they're hot, you interpret they might have a temperature. When a woman who's pregnant starts feeling like, oh, this is unbearable, you can interpret she's ready to go into labor. So we have to say over the years... Mankind has learned how to interpret science. And then there's also another form of interpretation, how language interpretation. So if you happen to be in a foreign country and you're brought into a hospital and you don't speak that language, chances are they'll bring someone in who speaks English, if that's your language, and will interpret for you and for the medical people what's being said. And we know that that interpretation isn't always going to be word for word because languages, different languages have different idioms. So the person who does the interpreting has to know both well. But when it comes to biblical interpretation, the lines often get blurred. And when in discussion with other believers on certain topics, you will often hear, well, that is not how I interpret that passage. So what we're left with then is that the Word of God is not clear on various points, and therefore there's no absolute standard of interpretation. So Charles, what's wrong with that conclusion?
0: Well, the main thing that's wrong with it is that the Bible itself uh, declares that there is an absolute standard of interpretation, and that is the Bible alone and in its entirety. The Bible itself is its own uh, interpreter. Um. This issue, of course, we're, what, a month and a half or so back from Reformation Sunday in October, but this was the linchpin of the Protestant Reformation is the issue of interpreting Scripture or, as it was talked about then, private interpretation. And Martin Luther was being battered and bruised uh, by the Roman Catholic Church of the day on this issue, and he stood solidly and said, unless you can convince me, by scripture itself, that I'm wrong in my statements uh, condemning certain council, church council teachings or the edicts of popes, then I cannot in good conscience change my point of view. He was appealing to the fact that the Bible alone is the only infallible source of truth. Sometime after that, the Roman Catholic Church launched a counter-reformation, and one of the first things that they declared in the Council of Trent, was that any interpretation of scripture that goes against the traditional understanding of Holy Mother Church cannot be accepted. So you've got a a tension between the idea that the individual who has access to the Holy Scriptures in their own language may interpret the Bible for themselves versus a monolithic statement of a church where you have a group of unknown people who've interpreted the Bible and saying this is the only correct one. So that is the first problem with this idea that the, that biblical interpretation is a wax nose that you've got your version, I've got my version, and we all just sort of play on the playground with our different interpretations. Right. That is not at all what scripture teaches.
1: So when you make the statement, which I believe is biblical, that the Bible interprets the Bible, then what Bible teachers do is they help, they should help us see what the Bible is saying. They don't interpret the Bible for us or they shouldn't. They should say, let's go back to scripture. But because in our day, people have not pursued scholarship. And I don't mean ivory tower scholarship. I mean, you should read the Bible. You should read what various people have said that. Um, the Bible means, and then you should use the Bible as a way in which to interpret whatever your particular question or dilemma is. But because we don't have a high regard for individual layman scholarship, then people rely on, well, this is what he said, or this is what he said. And, and now we have people divided into camps, which apparently isn't new because that's what was happening in Paul's day as well, correct?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and that's you can see a lot of his writings in the New Testament were addressed to dealing with that that issue.
1: Okay, so an interesting concept that I don't think gets enough attention is that everybody brings their presuppositions to Bible reading. If you'd been told, okay, the Bible is just a collection of fairy tales and myths and you approach the Bible that way, you're going to come up with certain conclusions. If you've been told that the Bible is a sacred holy book to Christians, the way the Quran is to Muslims, then you're going to look at it and say, okay, this is a holy book. But the Bible says that it is not just any other book, that it is the word of God. So if you approach the Bible as the word of God, then There is reason to pause and say, I may not understand it. I may not even like what it says in a given point. But if I look at it as the Word of God, I can't be quite so easy to dismiss what it says.
0: I think this is one of the maybe unexamined or surprisingly weak areas on the part of many, even people who claim to be Reformed Bible believing Christians. Is that we all claim to believe that the Bible is the divine word of God, but then once we start having these kind of discussions about interpretation, we realize that people are coming to various issues from someplace other than the starting point of God's divine word. And in some ways, this comes down to the the issue of sovereignty. Uh, we, we've lost the understanding of the, the the deep meaning of these words, or even their simple meaning. For example, if we say someone is sovereign, just by the declaration of that statement, it excludes everything else. You can't have more than one sovereign by definition. You know, it's an oxymoron to say that there are two or three sovereigns, uh, like, you know, a married bachelor type of thing. So if we really claim to believe that God's word uh, is sovereign, he has revealed it, it is infallible and inerrant, then that covers everything. And what we find is when we start talking about various issues and that can cross the whole range from politics, education, government, sexuality, family life, science, then we find people discussing any or all of those issues. And what begins to happen is that the people who are striving to be completely biblical on anything like this find themselves in sometimes confrontational discussions with people who claim to be equally biblical, but it's clear their starting point on that particular issue is not what scripture says. Let me just give an example off the top of my head. If we're discussing, let's say childhood sexuality uh, or human sexuality generally, if I'm having a discussion with a fellow Christian on this topic, which whichever direction that takes, we're either going to have complete agreement for the most part about what those issues are and how they're to be approached. If we're starting with what scripture says, however, If the other person, say, they're starting from the standpoint of the Kinsey Report or some humanistic sexual analysis that claims to be absolutely authoritative on the issue of human sexuality, then we're going to have a clash because they have a different starting point, and it's not God's divine word.
1: Right. That's why I started off with the question, how do we know what we know? Because, well, because I just know it. Well, what do you mean you just know it? Will it be based on things your parents told you? Textbooks you read in school, what you saw on social media, what the TV news says. In other words, we're going to have a starting point, and that's unavoidable. But if you don't examine your starting point and say, how is it different that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, as you pointed out, those are very strong statements. And yet, that's how the Gospel of John begins. He didn't have any confusion about that. And since we know that the Bible is inspired and the Holy Spirit gave to each of the writers what they were supposed to say in order that people would know history, truth, and revelation, that if you don't really examine your presuppositions that you bring to it, because some of us were converted later in life, and there were years and years and years of being told certain things, that if you go to the scripture and you say, Where do you find that? you won't find that.
0: Yeah, I'd like to uh, share something from the Westminster Confession of Faith that I think very succinctly encapsulates the, the whole force of this issue. And it's significant that the Westminster Confession, compared to other Protestant confessions and creedal statements, some of which start with God and his existence, his attributes, The Westminster Confession starts with Holy Scripture. That's the foundation of everything else that unfolds from the confession. And in point six of that first chapter, it makes this statement. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary. Now, notice this. For his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or the tradition of men. And it it goes on from there. So the the point that's being made both in that short statement and the fact that the confession begins with God's word, Holy Scripture, that's the indication that our starting point for all knowledge is this divine revelation inscripturated. And and leading up to this, I've been thinking the past several days what might be an analogy that... Hopefully, most of our listeners could connect with. And I think that most people in our audience are familiar enough with, you know, modern technology for a better or worse. That if I say, you know, if you've got an iPhone and your friend has an Android phone, when you start those phones up, they start up differently because what's the foundation of the operating system is different for either phone or an Apple computer versus a Windows based computer. Those devices are going to function. Based on the very thing that's at the heart of the device, and that is a type of operating system that was preloaded, and it won't operate any other way than what its foundation is. Now, I'm using that as an analogy for presupposition. So, if my operating assumption is that God's word is perfect in everything relating to salvation, and I just cut it off from there then that leads to a a very different approach to everything else in life. And if I don't think Scripture has much of anything to say to me about politics, about government, about education, about marriage, about family life, then I'm going to be looking somewhere else uh, for guidance on those things, which means I'm no longer relying on Scripture alone as the absolute source of truth.
1: Exactly. And I have been in more discussions than I care to count with somebody and we're debating a certain thing. Well, you know, the Bible is not a science textbook. The Bible is not a history book. The Bible is not a psychology textbook. And just by making that statement, it's obvious that textbooks are high up on their uh, list of things to regard as authoritative. Right. So you have, as you started at the beginning, the sovereignty of God over every area of life. Otherwise, if he's only sovereign over some, then he's really not sovereign. And they would hold to it and not even see that their presupposition goes to the validity of textbooks. And happily or unhappily, depending on how you look at it, in the world of artificial intelligence, It's going to become harder and harder to determine whether or not the author of something was actually a person or a program. And that's why I think it's very important for specifically believers to say, how do I know what I know? And if the starting point isn't, well, I know certain things because the Bible says it, but I don't know why I think, for example, that evolution is not true And the biblical account of creation is, or vice versa, because there are many people who come to faith and they've been indoctrinated with the idea of evolution. Well, I think it's safe to say, Charles, we need to be indoctrinated. In other words, hold to the doctrine of scripture as opposed to the doctrines of anything else.
0: Yes, and like so much else that we've talked about in these podcasts where we use this kind of phraseology, uh, the fact is, indoctrination is unavoidable. A person will be indoctrinated with some worldview, with some standard of absolute truth, uh, unavoidably. We, we just simply can't function in life. I mean, your your foundation, that person's foundation may be wrong, it may be faulty, but they've got to have that foundation or presupposition uh, to begin with in order to do anything. If, if you If you don't start somewhere, if you don't have a starting point, You can't go anywhere. You just sort of are sitting there not doing anything, not thinking anything, not accomplishing anything. But, you know, if my starting point is that I am created in God's image, that he is sovereign over my life, he has decreed all things whatsoever that come to pass, he has revealed his divine truth to me in Holy Scripture for all things necessary for life and faith, as the confession says, that's my starting point, and then everything unfolds from there. If my starting point is... You know, I and everybody else, we're products of uh, an evolutionary process that may have some vague, you know, uh, deity guiding it way out there in the universe somewhere, but that's not anything like this God of the Bible. Then that leaves it up to us to decide to move on up to the next level of evolution. We can take control of our destiny by means of evolutionary process. And that's a, that's what's been driving a lot of the transhumanist and artificial intelligence agenda, that particular worldview. That we we are the masters of our fate and we drive it forward, not some God somewhere.
1: Right. Uh, You know, as I was thinking, if you go back to Genesis 3, 5, what Satan was doing was giving an alternative interpretation to what God said. God said, you may eat of all the trees in the garden except that one. And Satan got Eve to consider, well, is that really what it means? I will surely die... uh, it's worth a try. Of course, her worth a try and then Adam's worth a try plunged mankind into sin. So God's word was true and it was infallible and it remains infallible. So tied into interpretation has to be infallibility. Otherwise, if we're interpreting something that's very fluid as opposed to something that's fixed, then Many conclusions can come out of fluidity, and really only one conclusion can come out of it's a fixed thing. And so as people, and I've experienced this myself on various topics, and as I'm sharing with others, when their presuppositions get rocked, they don't like it. I didn't like it when it happened with me. And you kind of feel like you're on sinking sand. So maybe this has something to do with the parable of the house built on rock or the house built on sand. Very few people, when they are solidly receiving the word of God and and endeavoring to live by it, can be moved off of that. I always used to say it's very hard to take someone who hasn't been reared in evolutionary thought to tell them that they came from apes. The only reason a lot of people would think they came from apes is that's what they were told and, and that's what everybody knew. So we want to be standing on the rock. And that means in every area, not just our personal salvation. Cause if God's word only applies to me as a person and to you as another person, we might be getting different words, but we don't get, there's an objective truth to scripture. And if we're not all under that then really and truly we're buying into the tempter's deception you can be as god determining right and wrong for yourself
0: yeah and that's that's the engine that drives the darwinian atheistic evolutionary theory and you know the the darwinist the evolutionist may say well no wait a minute we never said you descended from apes we've only said that apes and men have descended from a common ancestor and like somehow that's that's a better deal. Well, it, it, whether it's a better deal or not, it simply proves the point that their starting point is something other than the divine revelation of God. Now, look, I, I understand that, like, like you said, if, you, if you've never been in this point, it, it's kind of a, a tough thing to deal with when your foundations and your presuppositions have been challenged. But they're there, and they're going to be challenged one way or another. And it's a tough thing when you, you think you've been biblical and Christian and all this, in all these areas, when you suddenly are asked to realize, well, maybe on this particular point or all, all these areas, and I'll just generally refer to them again science, politics, family life, marriage, education. In this area, that area, you really have not been biblical at all. Because if you had, then you would be in a different place than you are now on that particular idea or that particular belief. And so this is the uh, this is the constant challenge. I, I think I have referred to this before, but you know one of the reasons that I enrolled at Westminster Theological Seminary was because I wanted to be thoroughly exposed to the apologetic methodology of Cornelius Van Til. Because I, in my study up to that point, before going to seminary, I realized that this man was one of the few people that interacted with modern philosophy in, in an intelligent way. And so I thought, at last, here's somebody that kind of speaks my language because I majored in philosophy. And I still remember, I don't know, like, like a day or an hour, but I, I recall very clearly the frustration that I felt when I realized this guy wasn't playing the game like my professors were at the university I attended. Because no matter whether he was discussing Immanuel Kant, Aristotle, Plato, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, Martin Heidegger, whoever, he always ended up at the same point. God's word alone is the divine truth, and it speaks about everything, and this philosopher, that philosopher are wrong because they didn't start with that truth.
1: And we've gotten into this idea that people outside the faith can be biblical critics and try to tell us where this isn't true and we know this now, et cetera. But the Bible is different than every other book. I've written books and you can read my books and go, I don't like them. Okay, fine. But if you say that with the Bible, I don't like it and I'm not going to follow it, you're missing the fact that the Bible is a very special and one-of-a-kind book. It does contain 66 books within that big, larger book. Man cannot criticize God, because if we can criticize God and find fault with what he says, then basically we're putting ourselves on a par with God, which, of course, then distorts the creator-creature distinction. And then out of that worldview that says, okay, there's some things in the Bible that are true, and I believe that, but there are other things that are not, I I thought it was like, if someone says that I'm a liar and I shouldn't be trusted... Can they also believe that I'm a good person? In other words, both those things can't be true. If I'm a liar and I shouldn't be trusted, then there's no reason to put good attached to me. And so out of these various interpretations are this idea that there are minor and major issues in the scripture. So you'll have people say, we don't really have to talk about this. Why is it important? It's not like it's a major issue. Well, I would ask anybody to go through the scriptures and find out where God says this is a minor issue and you get a pass for noncompliance or disobedience. You see, that's a man made structure and it comes out of an interpretive model that says we can decide what's important and what's not.
0: One of the things that we Christians are sometimes um, pilloried about is the fact that <clears throat> We are uh, accused of advocating some outdated primitive point of view that comes from a time uh, in society and culture where there was no science, uh, people were ignorant. Um, you know, we're, we're put on the same level as pagans who reject scripture and the biblical worldview just as much as any atheistic scientist today does and did. So that um, to advocate a biblical worldview in all areas of life is tantamount to people practicing human sacrifice and pounding on rocks and worshiping trees. And, you know, that may be the way it the reaction is to somebody who's been indoctrinated with the humanistic worldview when they first are told and asked to encounter this point of view. But the fact is, uh, the people on the other side, the people who advocate the atheistic, scientific, evolutionist, humanistic worldview, uh, the idea is that well, they're somehow on a higher level of being because they don't believe all this superstitious stuff. When as a matter of fact, if people would do some research on the history of science, uh, they will find that it is related to magic in its broadest sense. Uh, Dr. Rush Dooney's book, The Mythology of Science, is a good place to start with that. But on, on an even more, uh, I'll say, practical level or unexpected example, I'm I'm grasping for words here because most, let's just say this, most people assume that they're great scientific heroes, you know, this hall of fame of great men and women of science who have helped the human race by throwing off superstitions and, and the idea of some holy book and they concentrated on science and they've given us medical and scientific advancements that make life better. well, I think most people are familiar with the uh, space program and especially if you're anywhere between, say, 50 and 70 years of age, you know about the various moon launches and the the rockets that the U.S. has launched and all this uh, type of thing that was such a big deal in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But I wonder how many people know that one of the patriarchs of that movement was a guy named Jack Parsons, who was the founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. You know, an esteemed scientist of, of absolute brilliance. I think he taught at, uh, was it Caltech, Polytechnic in California? I can't think of the name of the school. You can correct me later. My point is, what most people don't know is that man was an occultist. He was a Satan worshiper. I mean, this is not disputed. Anybody who wants to look into his background, you know, he believed all kinds of Things that most people would dismiss as absolute crazy Halloweenish nonsense. But yet here's this great scientist that everybody bows and scrapes to when this topic and this particular area of science is mentioned. So friends, you're never going to get away from having an absolute standard and one person's standard is going to look more primitive to the other. But the point is by sheer force of logic, they can't all be true. A uh, thing can't be blue and red at the same time. I cannot be talking to you right now and not be talking to you right now and be in another state. And so it's the same with all these. But there's there's only one absolute revelation that claims to be total in its encompassing declarations of truth and speaking to every area of life. And that's God's divine word. And if you don't start with that, regardless of what endeavor you're launching out on, you're going to wind up either in an incomplete place or a very bad place.
1: And if you, you know, we earlier said that the Bible is its own interpreter. Well, have you ever looked at the Ten Commandments as God's rule for not continuing in sin? Now, I grant you, the Holy Spirit has a huge role in that. People are not born again by keeping the law. However, it was stated. So if you look through the Ten Commandments, you know things that having other gods, idolatry, failing to give God his due, taking his name in vain by your actions, not respecting the family, murder, adultery, theft, slander, covetousness. You see, these are all interpretations that come right out of the scripture in terms of understanding ourselves, understanding and, and looking at the presuppositions of those we are going to look to in order to know how to live. So if somebody, and I will take your word on this, Parsons was a Satanist, well, then you already know what commandments he was violating. If somebody lied about something in order to get a paper through, a scientific paper that wasn't verifiable, and then when people looked into it, it was lying, well, They were bearing false witness. So you must examine who is saying something to you. Otherwise, how do you know that their presuppositions aren't governing what they tell you is right and wrong? And I think a lot of us experienced it during the whole COVID thing when doctors were just saying what they were told to say. And some even admitted they don't agree with it, but they didn't want to lose their job. So it's very important that we know where people are coming from, what their starting point is.
0: And what you just said also points up another one of these uh, kinds of statements that not only is the issue of sovereignty unavoidable, so is the issue of law. Now, God's law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. But going back, as you did with the reference to um, Genesis and the Garden of Eden, Satan has its uh, counterfeits, uh, the the fake versions of God's law, and they become manifest in the state because the state is the highest expression of humanism. And so they they may not be called the Ten Commandments of this state or that government policy, but the the principle is the same. Uh, God's law has the most strict punishments for those who commit treason against the family because the family is God's central institution in his creation, well, the state has similar things for its central institutions, whether you be talking about the government school, um, you know, the abortion clinic. There are these institutions that the state, state gives its absolute blessing to, and you must not violate those things. So there are these aping counterfeit examples meant to replace the, the true examples given by God in Holy Scripture. They function in a similar way. But since there's a different God, a different source of law for those things, they, they look differently. But if people would carefully examine, they can see that since the beginning of human society, uh, those that are based on anything other than God's revealed will have to come up with some version uh, of those uh, laws and those rules. And they will look different and sound different, but the, the penalties and the, um, the stipulations are similar. God says if you obey this law, you'll be blessed in this way, if you will violate this law, if you break this commandment, you'll be punished, you'll reap the consequences of that way. The state does the same thing. So the state is either going to enforce its own humanistic law, or it will be a state or a a form of government that enforces and stands purely on God's law word and goes from there. So, I mean, in in the United States, in the early days of these uh, colonies, it used to be founded on God's word, and that's why we can see the law codes of those institutions and those governments uh, here on the East Coast in the early days, and they were all based on God's law. Now, of course, they're based on everything else, and so the law order looks different, the society looks different, and the things that will, uh, where you be blessed, quote-unquote, or you'll be punished, quote-unquote, are different because there is a different law code.
1: Yes. So, The scripture in First John 4 says this, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, I'm sure a lot of people read that and say, yes, they say there's another way to salvation. And so that's the, the limit of a false prophet. But a prophet is one who speaks for God. And since God is truth, the prophet will speak for truth. Now, if his or her version of truth is not based on God's word, then that person is a false prophet because he or she is not speaking the true word of God. And so one of the things that I'm forever grateful to the work of Calcedon and Rush Dooney is that he expected the layman to know the word of God. He expected the layman after hearing what he would have to say and and then referring to the scripture that supported what he said, that they would go and test the spirits to see, is this in line with scripture? Now, early on, when certain accepted things came into play, where was the church in saying, no, that's not true? No, it got accepted and now we're born into the 20th or 21st century depending on you know how old you are when you're listening to this and there's certain things that were promulgated by false prophets and we didn't know they were false prophets so when you come up to things where people are challenging what you've always known to be true and you find yourself getting angry or mad or disturbed it's not because the the person who brings this up is a meanie It's because the truth, if you are seeking God's truth, you'll be uncomfortable with anything that isn't true. Now, I'll give you a good example. Some of our listeners may be familiar with a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield has written a number of books. The first couple had to do with her life as a feminist, lesbian, tenured professor at a university in Syracuse and how her conversion as she describes it in her earlier books was like a train wreck because when the word of God came to her and she was transformed by the Holy Spirit, she had to make huge changes in her life. And so as a result of that, she is speaking to the power of God. So she went from being a feminist lesbian to married to a pastor having children that she raised and homeschooled and then continued to, you know, be on the lecture circuit. Well, her most recent book, five lies of our anti-Christian age is basically started or sourced by the fact that she's making a confession that she was wrong when she held to the idea that it was the loving Christian thing to do to use other people's accepted pronouns so if you have a daughter who thinks she's a man you should call refer to her as he or him and she considered that loving and she continued in that for a while until she became very disturbed at the fact that when she looked at it what she was doing she was fighting god she was actually being a false prophet in as much as she was going along with the lie, I know you're a girl, but we'll call you a boy. And she'd written a whole book on it, and I'm currently reading it. And and I'm amazed at the fact that she's willing to say, I was wrong. Not too many people are willing to do that. And even when they change their perspective, they don't necessarily want other people to know they've changed their perspective. Because they don't want to be deemed stupid, um, illiterate, some sort of hick who doesn't understand the way things really are. So I, I bring that up because that's what we all have to do when our presuppositions get rocked, when we see they're not in line with scripture. And I'm not going to say it's an easy thing. Charles, I know your background. You went through a lot of iterations looking for truth and Every step along the way, it didn't satisfy until the Holy Spirit made himself very prominent to you.
0: That is absolutely true. And what I found was over time was that, you know, what I had been presented in my youth in sort of a broad way was where I ended up, by God's grace, I ended up where I'd started, or the the proposition that I'd been given is, you know, that there's only one foundation of truth, and it's Holy Scripture. But again, that's not good enough for humanistic man, and people want other answers, so it comes down to a root thing, and this is another thing that frustrated me and so many other people about Dr. Van Til, and also Dr. Rush and their discussions on philosophy and apologetics, is the issue of the root issue of sin in human life, and you know, that has something to do with other than the fact that maybe you drink too much, you smoke cigarettes, and you cuss, and you date girls that do all those things, too. Uh, Sin is a pervasive thing, and it's not just these surface issues. And the starting point of sin is knowledge. Uh, The technical term, of course, epistemology. And if we have the wrong starting point, we're not going to end up in the place that glorifies God. And, you know, we may have to consider the fact that some of our most uh, popular or cherished spokespersons you know are are people who have not quite understood that on some area you know um, maybe you know of a certain theologian or pastor or bible teacher who is really good on this particular doctrine or that particular doctrine but if you ask them or they are opining on some other topic not related to that particular thing say relating to the five points of calvinism or what it may be They don't sound any different than the person you see on the evening network news on that particular issue. And that is a serious problem. And it shows how pervasive it is and how if someone uh, of that level of learning can be so mistaken on this, how much more of a challenge it is for us lesser people, quote unquote, that we must always be setting our shoulder to the wheel to constantly constantly peel back the layers of things that have grown up to distort the absolute authority of God's Holy Word. And I would challenge our listeners, maybe as a a closing thought or a closing exercise, why don't you jot down those areas of society and culture that are are common to everyone? And I've mentioned them several times, but let me just say it. Science, politics, marriage, government, education, family life, uh, entertainment, List them all that, that you know that would be characteristic of any culture. You know, you talk about an Asian country, a South American tra- country, North America, this country, that country. They've got distinctive areas, and all these things I've listed. And you go back and you look at those, and how you think about those areas, and what is it you ask is driving my thought on, say, the issue of marriage and family life, or entertainment? What do I see as the foundation? about what is good and acceptable and true on those particular areas. You may be surprised.
1: Yes. One last thing, and I I know you're going to want to comment on this. When we are affirming that the Bible is an infallible word, a lot of people say, well, yes, it is an infallible word in its original giving. So Jeremiah, Mark, Moses, it was infallibly given to them. But over the years, we can't be sure with this or that or the other thing. And so they sort of seed the point, yes, the Bible is infallible, but it's not infallible today, and this brings in all the higher criticism or whatever. So I would ask people to ask themselves this question. God gave his word to give us knowledge of history, the entire world from beginning to end. We get that in the Bible. Truth. What is truth? and then revealing to us stuff that we wouldn't figure out on our own. So if God did all that, but we can't trust the word of God today because, you know, it's gone through different iterations or whatever, could he be sovereign and not make sure that we have a reliable witness? And that reliable witness means that you don't Worry about somebody will think you're a fool if you believe something that the Bible says, but everybody else or modern humanistic thought doesn't, that the Bible remains God's infallible word, and that God would not cheat his people or the world in general if his word was not living and true and applicable today. So there are those who'll say, and I'm sure, Charles, you know their names more than I That yes, it was, it was true when it was written, but we're not so sure. And that's why we can get all these different interpretations, which basically then results in there isn't a firm, absolute, and true word from God.
0: Yeah, that pretty much describes uh, just about all mainline Protestant theology and biblical studies in the 20th century (laughs) and the 21st. We started off talking about the issue of interpretation and the way that some people just simply seek to torpedo uh, a discussion with which they disagree by saying, "Well, that's your interpretation; I've got mine." Doctor R.C. Sproul once made the comment that, "Yes, as Luther pointed out, as Scripture itself attests, we have the right of private interpretation." But, and this is this is a, a, as as much a part of that sola scriptura Protestant reformed principle concerning scripture as what i just said we also have the responsibility of accurate interpretation so yes there there you know i think another way that has been put is that there may be numerous applications of a particular principle or doctrine but there's only one true interpretation of it and you know regardless of how some people may have an agenda to mischaracterize uh, the nature of people who base their faith completely on the bible there's a remarkable amount of total unanimity about the basics of what Scripture teaches across denominational boundaries. So, yeah, there may be some areas where there are some you know minor disagreements. I mean, Ford and Chevrolet and Chrysler, they they still make Chryslers. Do I don't I can't remember, but the, you know they may have some slight modifications, but they all understand this is what an automobile is and this is what it has to be to be that. So, um, you know, we stand firmly, like the confession says that scripture alone and in its entirety is the divine word of God, and it's the only source of truth. You, you may have another source of truth. Just admit and be willing to say it's not holy scripture, and it's not, therefore, divinely inspired.
1: Right. So maybe this has a lot to do with what Paul said in terms of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a, it's a constant thing we have to do because everybody in the whole history comes at a different part of the journey, right? I came in, in the mid 20th century, I'm still here now. And so I'm going to have to apply God's word to when I live, which was different than in 800 AD, right? But the word of God remains applicable to every area and every time and to all people. And if we don't go to the scriptures and say, I can find an answer here, it may You know, I may have to look hard. I I may have to talk to lots of different people who have lots of different opinions on what that means. But ultimately, if you trust that God will reveal all truth to you, part and parcel of that is that hunger and thirst for these things. So the Christian life, I think we've talked about many times, doesn't mean a cushy, pleasant, there's never any hassles. You have to be ready to hear somebody think that you're a fool. But then take comfort in that the scriptures tell us that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And be okay that somebody thinks you're a fool.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> All right, listeners, out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us. And thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.